ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You know what it's like to try to walk into a heavy wind. The weather's coming at you. You've still got to get there. That is pretty much what the new governor of the RBA is trying to do now. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. After a four-month pause, the Reserve Bank has raised the cash rate to 4.35%. This wasn't surprising because we knew inflation was not slowing as quickly as the RBA would like. And partly this is because of what you could call headwinds, some of which are coming from, well, close to home. David Bassanese is Chief Economist at BetaShares and he joins us now. David, the RBA raised the interest rate this week. It's trying to put a lid on demand. What about the government? What's it doing? Well, I think the government, you know, to be honest, is, probably, is not doing that much in terms of the, the need at the moment to, yeah, to slow, make sure consumer spending is um, softening uh, to, to put downward pressure on prices because they are still quite high, downward pressure on inflation. So, I mean, the government, you know, hasn't really had a restrictive budget. I mean... What it could do, of course, is you know try to slow demand by you know raising taxes or cutting its own spending, these sort of things. But in the the last budget, it was um, at best neutral, um, but possibly actually contributing to demand. Yes, and we'll we'll come on to how the treasurer's positioned himself uh, about that shortly. But what about infrastructure? Because um, as you'll be aware, very aware, the IMF has suggested we cool our jets a bit. Yeah, so that was, a, I guess, a surprising um, intervention by the IMF, but it is true. I mean, it's what a number of economists have been talking about. I mean, it's not just the Fed, it's really the state governments here. I mean, they've been under pressure to ramp up infrastructure for three years and um, they finally all decided to do it and do it at the same time and at a time when the economy is already, you know, has low unemployment, has capacity constraints and... Um, it's just, uh, yeah, adding to demand and, uh, and cost pressures in the economy. Yeah. And, and, well, I can remember, it's not that long ago, David, that economists were saying, we need more infrastructure. Let's get on with it. Uh, we were. And I mean, I, look, I think this points to that the problem with infrastructure spend, I mean, it's, gr- it's great in the long term. No one would deny we need, you know, more infrastructure unless, you know, provided it is being, you know, cost benefit you know, it's been analysed by experts and they think, you know, the money, it does stack up and there are question marks about some of the spending, whether or not it does actually, you know, stack up on a cost-benefit basis. But assuming it does, the problem is it does take a long time to plan and organise and and, uh, you can't really fine-tune it, you know, you can't. And so a lot of these plans have been in the works for a while and it's just unfortunate they've um, they've all kind of hit the economy um, at an inopportune time. Yeah, it's like it's like stopping an oil tanker now. There's just there's a lot of momentum. Um, I want to ask about immigration, David. We're at record levels. Um, that has to have an effect on demand, especially on housing. I would think. Yeah, it does. In terms of the labour market, it adds to labour supply. I mean, we've had labour shortages, so to the extent you know we're getting new workers in, filling some labour shortages, that is great. 
but obviously does add to demand as well, uh, adds to labour demand because of, you know, they need goods and services and whatnot. Uh, and then the housing sector clearly adds to housing uh, demand without, you know, the they don't bring their own houses, so they're gonna, we either have to build more or, or, or they're going to you know, compete for the ones we've already got. And so, again, it's a, another thing at the moment that's adding to uh, demand and cost pressures. On balance, I think it is adding to demand and cost pressures. Um, and again, uh, not only is immigration picking up, but it's it's ramping up. You know, we, we, we're actually pick, uh, making up for the, the couple of years of, you know, very low to zero immigration. And so usually we get around 200 or so thousand a year. At the moment, the annual rate is closer to, you know, four or 500,000. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think we think that it might be 500,000 a year to September. We don't have the numbers yet. It, it all adds up though. If you think about the immigration, you think about the infrastructure, you think about neither governments at state and federal level being particularly helpful. It's it's quite a bit of headwind for the RBA to try and deal with with the one thing it can do. That is exactly right. I mean, yeah, and the problem the RBA faces is that it's got, it's got one instrument. All it can do is increase uh, interest rates. You know, it can't, like, increase taxes. It can't cut um, government spending. It can't do any of those things. So all it can do is increase interest rates. Uh, which does affect a narrow slice of households, obviously those with um, you know high debts in particular, um, but it doesn't directly affect you know uh, those without debts. Um, in fact, many you know that are that are living off interest income have term deposits actually benefit when the, yeah. when the RBA raises rates. So um, it uh, it does make the the burden of restraint. It is. Um, not well balanced at no, the it's moment, not, the burden of restraint. Yeah. Not fairly distributed. All right, it is interesting that the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is saying that the government is acting to drive down inflation, but he's also talking about easing the cost of living pressure when it occurs to me that easing the cost of living pressure is not always helpful for driving down inflation. Well, I mean, depending on how you do it, it can be directly counter to it. I mean, because if, if the problem at the moment is overly strong demand, um, but you're focused on, um, you know, trying to support demand by, you know, giving out, you know, income, for example, you know, just direct income grants to deal with high electricity prices. And I'm not saying they did, are doing that, but if if governments were to do that, I mean, it just goes completely counter to what the RBA uh, is trying to do. And in fact, all it does is make the RBA, you know, even more likely to want to raise interest rates. So the more the, uh, the government sort of tries to help um, on the one hand, it just makes the, you know, it just makes the burden on the RBA even even greater. You see, you see the difference between the, the position of the politician and the, the position of the, of, of the technocrat because <laughs> Jim Chalmers is making sympathetic noises about the effect of yes. higher rates on households, very sympathetic, and underlining that the decision is made by the, and it's his emphasis, but I'll say it again, David, the independent reserve bank. Yeah, I look, and to be honest, I mean, the, he, he's actually not only saying it's there. I mean, he's probably um, sort of been on the sidelines saying, you know, we think inflation is contained in the RBA. The Treasury itself hasn't, isn't like upgrading their inflation. He's been making noises, almost suggesting the RBA doesn't need to raise rates. And he's on the side of, you know, those that, are, that, that don't want to see a rate rise. Now, the problem with that. Uh, it's a credibility problem. And the RBA, I think, was under pressure to respond to a high inflation number a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and were it not to have responded, you know, people would question its credibility in, in fighting inflation. And um, any perception that they're under pressure from the government not to act perversely makes them even more likely to act. So um, 
you know, I think some of his interventions uh, you know, have probably not been helpful. It's actually made the RBA even more likely to want to have to raise rates just to demonstrate their independence uh, from the government. All the, all the while saying, well, I've, I've, I've done my bit. David, th- thank, you, <laughs> thank you very much for unpacking it for us today. No worries. Great to be with you, Richard. David Bassanese, Chief Economist at BetaShares. The big story about consulting this year has been PwC, which shared inside knowledge it had from working with the ATO with other clients who wanted to minimise their tax. A Senate inquiry into the government's use of consultants will report in March next year. And one of the many smaller consultancies that work with government is keen to sketch out a way forward. John Glenn is Managing Director of Kia. John, we have to start with this. Some consultancies have behaved in a way that's flat out wrong. I think it's fair to say that some of the behaviours of some of the big companies have been egregious and they've been called out on it. And some of that falls down into more than just the behaviour, it's the leadership that's flown through. You've seen that with PwC, where it's been acknowledged and accepted within the organisation and the leaders have fallen on their swords. But that culture then permeates the organisation because it's an accepted way of behaviour. Mm. So I do want to make it clear, there are a lot of good people working in those firms. I mean, we should, you know, and they do do good work. That's some of the reason why they are big. Just my view is they shouldn't be doing all the work. All right. That is the more substantive issue for you, isn't it? That there's this sort of major issue with consulting as used by the federal public sector. What is that? Almost $2 billion was spent on four companies, almost without open competition. And that creates a very closed market. And so no new entrants can come in, no new ideas can come in, and we are actually just funding for international companies. You're particularly critical of the situation in defence as well. Now, what is the issue there? Well, I'm critical of defence because they've created a structure called major service providers where they've outsourced their services, above-the-line services in their procurement, uh, to four consortia. And the four consortia, two of which have got the big four in them and two of them are international companies, largely use small companies to provide them with resources and they denigrate or reduce the value of small business and the growth of small business and the opportunity for companies in Australia. And that's a closed market too. And I'm not saying defence doesn't need to have major service providers and support. Again, in defence, they've dictated that those four companies should have all the work. How much money are we talking about? About $400 million a year, $4.5 billion over five years. Right, $4.5 billion over five years. Yeah. Now, we have to say this, John, you run a consultancy. I do. Why would someone listening now not think, well, of course this guy's going to argue for change. He runs a small business. He wants a bigger piece of the pie. I think it's a fair comment, and it's true. <laughs> you know, so you can't avoid that. We're, we're in business. But what I'm saying is we're happy to compete, but there's no opportunity to compete. And there's not just my business, there's lots of small to medium businesses in Australia with very smart people and great, you know, intellectual property that we should be giving the chance to develop to create an Australian industry that we can export. Instead, we're funding the money into international companies that furthers their interests, not Australia's. So is your concern about the growth of an industry or do you in any way make the argument that Australian taxpayers, the Australian government, is less well served because it's only drawing on a small group of organisations? Oh, I think, I think both those issues. So firstly, let me just say, we, we need a better public service mm. and we've hollowed it out. And where they've used 
consulting companies to provide contracted support, surrogate resources, they should stop. That's just a waste of money. So there's been an, I'll say, almost a lazy, easy way of buying things, which is why the big four have come to dominate and the major service providers in defence. And that's not good for the industry, it's not good for competition, and it's not good for the growth of new ideas. So it doesn't help the public sector because they don't get the tension and the pressure of new ideas and new thought and new ways of doing things and innovation. And it's not good for Australia because the public purse is being spent in a way that doesn't further Australia's interests, it furthers others' interests. All right. Can we talk about the changes you propose? You want all tenders to be visible to uh, small and medium-sized enterprises, including panels. Now, I think I should get you to say what these panels are, what, what they are and what they do. Right. A panel is a construct that they use in government in particular to pre-select approved companies that can do work. So you apply to get onto a panel, doesn't give you any work, but then the buying organisation, the department, goes to the panel and says, I want two or three companies off the panel. They send the request for tender out to the people who are on the panel and they can contract them quicker because they've already agreed to the terms and conditions. So panels are an interesting construct because they allow procurement to occur quicker. Mm. What happens with panels, though, is it also allows the buyer to select just two or three and, in fact, one company and go sole source to a single company and avoid competition if they choose. If you're a big company, by virtue of being big, you're across the organisation, you're well-known, your brand is there, Mm. you understand what the client wants because you're engaged with the organisation. And so when you go out to hire a company and select two or three companies to compete, even if you're doing competition, you go to the names that you know. The unfortunate part about that is the names that are on the tip of everybody's tongue, of course, is the big four. So you're not opening yourself up to no, new no. opportunity, right? I'm old enough to remember a phrase which was no one ever got sacked for buying IBM, which is, shows how old I am, I think, right. John. Yeah. But the point about panels is that you have to be on the panel. If you're not on the panel, you're not in the running. Right. So the panels then don't refresh. So they create a panel and it sits there for three, four or five years without any new entrance to it. If you're not on the panel, you can't get on because they run a procurement process inside government right. that says we're going to do this. And the tenders are not visible to smaller firms now. That's what you're saying. Typically, no, because they don't have the reach. They can't see where right. they can offer it. So they, so if they don't know the people who's putting the tender out, they don't know that the tender's coming, they don't get invited. There is a model in government that's already being used. It, it could be built on, but it's a foundation, which is called the digital marketplace. And they've done it in a different way. You can apply to go onto that panel, show your credentials and be accepted onto that panel at any time. It's always open for new entrants. That's a very positive move and should be picked up across the board. You also want defence panels to be open to smaller firms. This is basically the situation we've just been talking about, but writ large, yes? Mm -hmm. So if you don't open it up to small firms, you can't encourage small firms to become big ones. So it's easy for defence. It's an easy for the buyer, yeah, yeah. and, and I understand that they've got challenges about complexity and, and, and so on, but... It's the biggest, most complicated department in Canberra, isn't it? It is the biggest, most complicated department in Canberra. Yeah. And they're challenged. But equally, life isn't supposed to be that easy. I also remember the phrase that says life wasn't meant to be easy, right? Yeah, with you. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't going to be that easy, right? There's, a, there's an obligation that sits in there which is about development of Australian industry. And so closing it down and using their buying power, inadvertently perhaps, to close the industry and narrow it down and not allowing the growth of new entrants and small businesses and opportunity to do things in smarter and different ways gives you no new ideas. You would also like to see a ban on companies both 
designing the solutions and kind of delivering them. Yes. So the phrase that's usually used in this, they talk about above the line and below the line. So above the line are those who are advising the organisation on what they should buy, how they should buy it, what the requirements should look like. And below the line is those who deliver it. So they build the stuff, wield the spanners. And there is a mix, there's a challenge in here, right? Because the people who wield the spanners, do the welding, do the, the software development, know how to do that better. Mm. And so you want to bring them across into the top end, you know, above the line to advise you. But unfortunately, if they become your advisor, they also shape what it should look like and it becomes a conflict of interest by virtue of the inside knowledge and the behaviour. Deirdre Chambers, we're recommending you use us to do this stuff. Correct. Okay. (laughs) What do you say to the idea, and you've touched on this already, John, that we should have less use of consultants and just build greater capacity within the public service? We should. We should build greater capacity in the public service. Certainly where it comes that they've been hiring resources and making them look like public servants rather than bringing in ideas, they should, if they need the resources, hire the resources. There are much better ways of doing that. They should also have a better capacity for some of the consulting work that they're doing. The public service fundamentally does three things. It helps design and articulate policy. It executes the policy and it runs its own administration. So they should be the masters of policy design. And they should be hiring an expertise where they need it that they don't hold internally because they can't hold everything. So, so go to the universities, go to the specialist consulting companies and bring them in, but bring your own consulting expertise about how to write a paper, how to you know, pull a problem apart and do those things. So they should build their own capacity. The reality is if you did only that in the public sector, you'd actually recreate the problem that we've got, which would be no new ideas. So you want, you want, you want a mix. So the pendulum is... At one stage is, you know, we'll just hire consultants and that's where we've been. The Mm. pendulum has swung back and says, no consultants, we're not going to hire any of them. The reality is it needs to be somewhere in the middle. A better value public service, more capable, for sure, and a better industry to support it. Well, the clock is ticking on this because I think the the Senate inquiry finishes in March. So we'll see then. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. John Glenn from Kia. It's fair to say that we're all very conscious of inflation at the moment. We notice that prices are going up. We feel it. But to get a real handle on it, we use a measure, the Consumer Price Index, or CPI. It's the key number the RBA looks at when it's setting interest rates. But the CPI is not your dad's CPI or your granddad's CPI. And your friend overseas is not theirs either. Here's economist Cameron Murray. What we call the Consumer Price Index today is not conceptually the same thing we called the Consumer Price Index 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The whole concept of measuring prices in the economy has evolved with our understanding of the economy. What we're measuring today is is different to what we were measuring, for example, in the 1950s when we first began the modern consumer price index uh, and very different to what we had in the in the 1920s and 30s which was a sort of retail price index of what food and clothes cost at the shop mm. um, whereas now we have this very broad definition we have the price of new housing we have the price of insurances and financial products and banking services so we have a very different mix of what we're measuring today. And so if you want to say, oh, look, inflation's different to what it was in the 60s, I'm saying, yes, the measured number is different, but also the concept of what we're measuring is different. I'll get into the approach 
a bit later, but I'm keen to just kind of walk through some of the changes because I think you said the first official CPI is, is just after the war. I think it's 1948. Correct. When you look at it now, what stands out in that measure? Yeah, so the first CPI didn't include the cost of motor vehicles or motor transport at all. And it took until another revision four years later to realize people are spending a huge amount on these newfangled motor vehicles. Maybe we should measure what their price is and whether it's going up or down. So that's a pretty big change. And another interesting part is just how narrow, how few things we measured We didn't have any recreational, cultural activities, any education costs. This was before communication, so there were no telephone costs. Postage wasn't in there. It was mostly food, so a 30% of the CPI was food, and it was clothing and footwear. And in fact, 21% was clothing and footwear, and half of that was women's clothing. So 10% of the whole CPI was just women's clothing. Whereas today, um, 10% is transport. 1948, 10% was just women's clothing, which is now something like 1% or a fraction of 1%. I think it's three and a half for all, for all clothing and footwear now, whereas yeah. it's 20, what did you say, 21.6 in 1948, which, which yeah, shows, shows a lot about how not just what we measure is different and how we measure, but the cost of things has come down. Some things are much cheaper than they used to be. Oh, yeah, and that's one of those classic cases where um, – economic growth has been good. Now we have more clothes per person, better quality, and and we spend a fraction of our our budget on it compared to what we used to. That's a really good sign, in in my view, Mm. of growth and our ability to consume lots of different things. And now, for example, uh, we have 12.7% of our consumption basket in CPI as recreation and culture. So all those uh, fun things that we do, which weren't included for the first few decades of the, the CPI. I actually remember talking to you earlier this year when you you ran the ruler over your own family's consumption. And I remember fun things featured pretty highly for you. So yeah. I'm glad they're in there. Um, <laughs> the first few revisions, the ABS was sort of tweaking. When do we start to see, I suppose, big conceptual changes in what this was? Yeah, so I guess until 1980, just about, the CPI was a measure of only these select few items of spending for employee households in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Adelaide, I think. And it took until the 1980s to include all the capital cities, to include Perth and Hobart and Darwin and Canberra. Um, So before that, we we just ignored completely what prices were doing in those areas. Uh, So that's one big change. And then it was really housing is the very tricky part in CPI. So from 1986, we switched from measuring the cost of purchasing new homes, including land in the CPI, and we changed it to what's called house purchase costs, which are essentially the flow measure, the mortgage repayment measure for owner-occupied households with a mortgage. And that lasted for about 12 years, measuring the mortgage repayment as the measurement of the cost of housing for Mm. owner-occupied households. The interesting problem with doing that is in the 1990s, uh, in the early 1990s, we sort of changed our macroeconomic management strategy to focus on monetary policy, that is changing the central bank interest rate and affecting mortgage rates and other interest rates in the economy. The problem with measuring that component of CPI is that when the central bank wanted to reduce inflation by putting the interest rate up, 
that component of the CPI actually went up because people's mortgages got more expensive. And the argument there was essentially that that isn't a real measure of consumer prices. Those interest costs are sort of an investment expense for buying an investment asset, a house, right? And we don't include in the CPI other investments like buying shares. So why should we include housing investment, buying houses, where the price and the cost of investing is heavily influenced by monetary policy? So we sort of went back and said, we're going to have a pure price index of only consumer goods. So we don't want secondhand goods, we don't want secondhand cars, and we don't want assets, we don't want property. And so now a lot of people say, oh yeah, but my mortgage has gone up and CPI is you know, not reflecting my reality. And I can say, well, yeah, that's by design. CPI is not meant to measure mortgage costs because you're buying an asset and the cost of buying assets isn't included. As you unpack it, there has been a lot of changes and it is clear it's not just that what we measure and what we call inflation today is, is different to what we used to measure and call inflation. We've changed our methods too. And we're better at, at, at some of this. We're better at monitoring prices. Yeah, much better. So for, for its whole life, the CPI is based on sampling prices in certain stores at certain points of time. And it's based on surveying a small number of consumers to know how much do they spend on food compared to cars, compared to clothes, because we are doing a weighted average and we need to know the weights, like how much do we assign to, to one product or another. And so this survey is called the Household Expenditure Survey, and that's where we previously got the weights. So in the 90s, it was about 2,500 households in Australia got surveyed and they would track their consumption for two months. And during the year, those 2,000 households with overlapping two-month periods would bundle up and, and work out how much the average household spends on different goods. Now it's about 8,000 people in that survey, but we also can use, for example, uh, checkout data from supermarkets about how much people are spending on different items of food. And we can use other sort of tax returns and other electronic records from major retailers to better understand those, those weights and what people are actually mm. spending on. So in terms of our methods, in terms of monitoring, we're much better now, much more comprehensive. But conceptually... What we measure in CPI is different conceptually to what a lot of people think it is. Yeah, and I think that's your, your main point, that it's not a straightforward comparison with the past. And it's not even a straightforward comparison with other, with other economies, is it? Because we don't all do it the same way. Yeah, and I think that is something that's been underappreciated in the last two years. Uh, because we've had this big inflation shock and we're comparing, oh, US inflation came in hot, uh, European inflation came in that, what's in store for Australian inflation? Well, I think if you understood the difference in the methods between countries, you'd have a better understanding of what to expect. Because, for example, um, in Australia, we stick with this pure price index idea. So secondhand goods aren't in there because they've already been consumed. In the United States, for example, 4% of the CPI is used cars. And in Australia, it's 0%. Um, and so, for example, when the price of used cars increased a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, that increased the measured CPI in the US, but had no effect in Australia. And the other big difference, for example, with the United States is that for owner-occupied housing in Australia, we only measure the cost of constructing new homes, which is only gives... 8.7% of CPI, so it's weighted at 8.7%, right? 
Whereas in the United States, they use a different approach and they say, well, for owner-occupiers, we're going to pretend that they rent their home from themselves at the market price and we're going to impute, we're going to estimate what the market price would have been that they had to pay themselves. And so when rents go up, we're just going to put into the CPI an assumption that owner-occupied households, their costs went up as well. And what's amazing is they weight that at 24% of their <sighs> CPI, whereas Australia, that thing doesn't even exist no. in our CPI. Cameron, thanks for this. It's really interesting to unpack the differences, not, not only with between us and other countries, but between us and ourselves just from decades ago. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Richard. Cameron Murray from Fresh Economic Thinking. And that's it for the show for now. Next time, what is going on in Gaza and the huge economic impact that it's having in the region? The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Kate McDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.